1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books Network. This is Shu Wan, the host of Disability, Disability Study Channel. Today, I feel very happy to invite uh, Jessica and Nico to join us to introduce their I mean, Edith Wallen, Man of Women in Social Justice Movement, Literature and Arts. So, the first thing I want to do is that I want to invite um, Nico and Jessica to introduce themselves to us. Sure. Um,
0: well, thank you so much for having us. We're very excited to be here. Um, I'm Nicole Krivar. I am finishing my PhD in English literature at the University of Arizona. Um, and my research specializes in contemporary ethnic American literature, especially literature of the borderlands and Chicanox lit, um, as well as social, cultural and critical theory My um, dissertations exploring trauma theory and neoliberalism right now. Um, and I've also been working as a community leader in a College Pathways program called Wildcat Writers that works with local Title I high schools and underrepresented students.
2: And uh, I'll also say hello here. I'm Jessica Lowell Mason. Thanks so much for having both of us to talk about our recently published book. Uh, I am a PhD candidate at the University at Buffalo in the Department of Global Gender and Sexuality Studies. Uh, over um, on the Seneca Nation of the Hanashani. And I, um, my work is within MAD studies and disability studies, feminist studies, uh, kind of a, a broad range of studies that kind of come together and focus uh, on theor- is theorizing a MAD archive. But I also am the co-founder of an organization, feminist literacy organization, called Mad Women in the Attic here in Buffalo, New York. And uh, I do a lot of work with that organization, which is connected to this book. And I'm you know I'm also a mom of two teenagers and um, I teach at, at uh, local at local colleges. so just a little bit about me to get started. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for your answers. For next question, I'm wondering why you guys are interested in the promising field of disability studies.
0: Sure.. Um, well, my, my interest in disability studies is really related to the broader field of social justice activism, particularly regarding women's rights, bodily autonomy, and mental health. Um, historically and presently, right, women and gender nonconforming folks, when they speak out or protest against the ruling order, which is the dominant hegemonic, patriarchal, capitalist type of systems of oppression, they're often labeled as crazy or coded in disability-related language which is problematic, right? Because both in terms of the misappropriation of these labels and in the ways that they can disadvantage and further damage the identities and autonomy of individuals with disabilities.
2: Thank you, Nicole. I'm going to kind of come to this question, maybe with a little bit more of a personal story. Um, and I, I I, came to disability studies through uh, my work uh, in my master's program uh, on Virginia Woolf. And I was trying to write a thesis where I was arguing against the sort of posthumous diagnosis of Virginia Woolf with various kinds of uh, mad labels and, you know, as labeling the labeling of her that sort of happened in literary and psychology and psychiatric studies as a, um, as a person with a mental illness that's, that's been kind of foisted on her in her legacy. And I was really wanting to to argue against this and work against this after I had been asked in an, uh, a psychology course that I was taking when I was thinking of going into that field, which I did not end up going into. But I was asked to diagnose Virginia Woolf with a DSM uh, diagnosis at, for our final assignment. And that's sort of what spurred my whole interest in um, doing what I wanted to do, which was, this wasn't right. Why, why are we diagnosing wolf this way? But then I didn't know that a framework existed for arguing against this. And my first inkling that such a framework might exist was within disability studies. When I started to read um, some disability studies work, uh, although madness wasn't central to it at the time, I, I was seeing in there a space for rethinking um, rethinking mental health diagnosis and the way that we we see and and treat people and then later i came back to this area of study with my phd program after i had experienced my own institutionalization and and had received diagnoses um, upon my person and self that i found extremely harmful and so it just furthered my entry into this field so that's where my interest comes from
1: okay thank you so much for you guys answer for next question let's go to the book so my first question about books is that I'm wondering how is this book situated in relation to disability studies?
2: Thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this question for a little bit here. Uh, so while we definitely frame this book within disability studies, um, the way that I've been thinking about disability studies later and, and during the time that we were creating this book is very much informed by both the disability rights movement and the current kind of development of the movement, which is the disability justice um, movement, which is that movement, but developed further and looked at through a crip, queer, um, uh, women of color lens. So the work contributes to disability studies by centering madness, which is not always done within the field of disability studies. It's sort of been kind of... um, Madness as a subject has been on the kind of periphery of disability studies. I remember when I first encountered madness in a disability studies book, it was one essay in a, in a very big compilation of disability studies. And I clung to that essay. You know, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is it. And so for, for a long time, all I had was that one essay on Mad Pride, uh, on Mad Pride in particular. And, but then over the, over the years that I've been doing my PhD work, I've been getting to meet uh, MAD studies scholars, MAD studies professors, work with uh, people doing MAD activism. And so it's changed the shape of the way uh, that, that this work kind of is coming into disability studies. So it is contributing to uh, looking at madness within disability studies. Um, and it's definitely um, expresses or is part of an exploration of uh thinking about bodies thinking about people outside of a diagnostic framework or pushing up against that diagnostic framework and also understanding that the diagnostic framework that creates uh madness as a subject as as connected to colonial uh white supremacist and cis uh, heteropatriarchal ableist sanist violence and I want to here give a, a little bit of a shout out to the work of disability justice activists, um, especially the work of the collective Sins and Valid. Um, and I want to comment on what they call the next stage in disability rights movement evolution, which I think our book and I hope that our book is is kind of part of. Um, so as I said, disability studies has historically only focused on disability rights frameworks and and in a way that's kind of problematic because it's it's based on what sins invalid calls a single identity issue and has historically centered white experiences and centered mobility impairments and so mad studies also has had issues with centering whiteness um and this is kind of a challenge within disability studies right now. And I hope that uh, you know, I hope that our book in centering madness and centering people who are coming to the collection as having lived experiences and having a connection to the term mad uh, is is a way of contributing to um, decentering uh, decentering physical disability. Uh, and putting madness at its center and looking at lived experience. And instead of coming to it as an academic first work, coming to it as a lived experienced first work. So I I guess that's what I'd say about that. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Okay. Thanks so much for your answer. For the last question, um, I want to know uh, if possible, would you feel comfortable saying anything about your personal relationship with madness, disability, or the mad women?
0: Sure. Um, So I'll start. Um, You know, madness can really be construed in many ways, right? And our collection tries to really speak to the multiplicities of that term. Um, I identify as mad for many reasons, including my experiences in the mental health system and just dismissive treatment that I've received along the way from medical doctors. Um, But I also align with madness as a feminist activist, right? Whose research and pedagogy tries to push, push back against the patriarchal and sanest norms within and outside of academia.
2: And I'll just say that uh, I, I am the, uh, the co-facilitator of a weekly writing workshop called Memoirs to Reimagine Mental Health Care. And in doing that work, we, we are often having discussions about madness. So one of the things when I, whenever I'm asked this question about like, what does mad mean to you or how do you identify with it? I can't speak to every different kind of madness and how people identify with it. For me, um, madness and me being able to feel comfortable claiming that term um, comes out of uh, feminist anger. I define mad as as a form of feminist a- anger and rage against uh, colonial white supremacists, heteropatriarchy, essentially. Um, and it's and it's a term of agency because it's it's like activism, it's movement, it's motion, it's resistance, it's fighting, it's fighting for liberation. So those are all you know different kinds of ways that I identify as mad. Whereas I know that I work with um, people in. In my community that might identify as mad because of their lived experience in the system and having had labels, which I also have had, but my madness in the way that I claim it is not in relation to those labels because I don't like, uh, I don't want to have anything to do with those labels in some way because they they were violence against me, but I do know that some people identify mad as uh, having psychiatric disability, and not everyone who identifies with mad has bad feelings toward diagnosis to to the extent that I do.
1: Okay, thank you so much for your answer again. <clears throat> so for the next question, I would like to know what does the term "mad academic" mean to you, and how does this collection assert the mad women as a subject worthy of academic studies?
0: Yeah. Um, so first, I think it helps to distinguish that. Academic knowledge often requires or tends toward pre-established, sanist, heteropatriarchal, and often racist approaches to research, including whose research is considered academic, right? Um, Also to pedagogy, including what we're allowed to talk about in the classroom, which is becoming more and more monitored, right? Um, Or the quantifiable metrics that are considered like the main source of learning and teaching effectiveness that are placed upon academics, and also to service, um I've seen a lot of these at play when peers who choose to take on research related to social justice, community activism, or just critiquing like the racist and sexist systems operating with the academy, they receive less recognition. They receive, you know, fewer funding opportunities. and they ultimately have less support and acknowledgement from the department. Um, my work as a graduate director of a community writing program, for example, um, it's not really recognized or celebrated, it's just kind of considered, oh, this is this extra thing that she does, right? Um, but in reality, it's so important just for the university community, for the local community. It's informed my research, my my approach as an educator, right? Um, and this helps us get to an understanding of MAD academics as inclusive of those scholars who fight back, right, and do the needed work to refute these delimiting and often uninclusive systems, um, and like trends within academia, but Mad Academics is also inclusive of minority scholars, gender nonconforming folks, and individuals with disability within academia who have continued to be silenced or whose work is not considered academic, especially if they're speaking about these personal lived experiences that we keep coming back to. Um, so, what our collection does is it asserts the Mad Woman, including the Mad Academics and the writers in this collection and beyond. As a subject worthy of academic study. So, you know, as a group of scholars whose research in personal creative writings are valid forms of academic work, um, one of our contributors, Erin Soros, poignantly asked in her creative essay, um, The Mad Woman at the Conference, she states, Which voices are allowed to speak among us? And I think that really gets to the heart of it that marginalized voices and the voices of those whose actions are deemed as like acts of insanity. From deviating from social norms, they're silenced, right? They don't have a place at the table. Our collection makes that space and tries to celebrate those voices.
1: Thank you so much for your answer. Again, for the next question, um, I want to know how are the Mad Pride movement and other social justice movement part of this book project and how it came to be and how it was designed.
2: Okay, I, I'll speak to this for a little bit. Um, so in the way that I said before that the disability rights movement has shifted and it's 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 now uh, a disability justice movement. The mad pride movement, okay, the way that I the way that I frame this is many people think of the mad pride movement as happening at a moment, as happening at one particular historical moment, which is in the 1990s. That's sort of when it is is located historically uh, by most public accounts. It's when it becomes um, it becomes kind of visible in the 90s. But I think that the Mad Pride movement, what we're calling it, I'm no longer calling it the Mad Pride movement, I guess, in my daily uses, because now I call it the Mad Liberation movement. That's that's something that I've started to call it. Um, and uh, it's a term that I and others, uh, other mad activists, uh, such as uh, Vesper Moore, whose work is really important um, to Mad Liberation, are using... Uh, that is more grounded in black feminist activism and theory so this the mad pride movement which we which we might think of in relation to the 1990s protests that were held the the peer movement that was formed out of those protests people going outside of the American psychological and American psychiatric associations and holding signs and saying you know stop shocking us stop taking away our rights All of those images come to mind with this history of the Mad Pride movement. Um, But I like to think about the Mad Pride movement as having a much longer history than this, because I, and the Mad Liberation movement, because I think that there have been people who have been fighting against their oppression. Um, There have been people who have been labeled mad, have been labeled mentally ill, have been locked in lunatic asylums, uh, you know, across the past couple of hundred, few hundred years who have been part of this movement, part of these acts of resistance that we will miss out on. We won't see their resistances if we just keep our concept of the Mad Pride movement limited within these sort of historical brackets that it's been given. So I like to do a long history in thinking about the Mad Pride movement. And I think our book, Mad Women and Social Justice, Movements, Literature and Arts, is a contribution to that. It is an act of resistance. It's, it's a social... It's a social act of gathering of voices and conversation on the subject of madness at this current moment that we're living in that is akin to and works alongside to uh, the bodies that have resisted across centuries who are part of this movement, um, bodies that gathered in the 1990s and held their signs, our bodies, as, as connected to this work and writing these essays.
1: Okay. Thank you so much for answering. again. So our next question, I noticed when I read your book, um, this book began with an introduction by Erica Duncan. I'm wondering why did you ask Duncan to write an introduction and what do you think about her frame the collection?
2: Thanks so much for asking this. And I'm going to answer this just because I, uh, I have a personal connection to Erica Duncan through the work that I do with, uh, History Writers Network, of which Erica Duncan is the is the founder, um, and I want to say a little bit about the fact that Erica worked in the 1970s uh, with with writers who were writing on the subject of, to some degree. The Mad Woman in Madness. Not necessarily having that be a central theme, but we're writing about feminism. We're writing about not being heard, wanting to be heard, and they were gathering in the in in these kind of living room spaces called salons. It's sort of part of this uh, feminist literary salon tradition of of the nineteen seventies that uh, I think uh gilbert and gubar who wrote the mad woman in the attic would be connected to as their work was published in 1979 kind of during that period of the salon this period that erica duncan was a part of Um, and the work of herstory writers network where i am a, a facilitator with that i'm a facilitator with came out of this movement came out of this moment when literary scholars were writing about silencing even if they were not necessarily uh, writing about madness and the mad woman in particular. So in asking Duncan, we, uh, we hoped to connect our work in the present, our present voices, with so, to, to have it sort of prefaced by someone who had lived in this past that Gilbert and Gouvard's work arose out of and had knowledge, like lived bodily, physical knowledge of that experience of time and place, uh, when the mad woman kind of comes into discourse in a more acute way in the public consciousness. So I want to say that um, I don't think that Erica's introduction framed our work so much as that it like gave loving care to it and gave kind of a loving, uh, a loving heartfelt, personal connection to it. And that's how Erica Duncan wrote the introduction. Uh, I, I, I want to just read a really brief part of it um, to begin to read this book. Duncan writes, is to enter very troubled waters. For me, it brought back so many memories of how hard it was, even in feminist circles, to avoid pathologizing, isolating definitions of madness. It brought back memories of other salons where Alice Walker, Paula Gunn-Allen, Linda Hogan, and Toy Derricotte dared us to look at root causes in a much more essential way. I think of how the years telescoped to allow me in reading this collection to revisit the yoke of colonization of women and madness through the deepest layers of silencing, othering, racism, oppression, enslavement, and erasure, and all I couldn't know then, and all I know now. So you, could, you can hear in Erica Duncan's introduction that our collection, reading it, brought her back to that time and made her think differently upon the conversations that were happening at that time, and I, I think that that's a great way of going back in time and forward in time at the same time, which is what this collection does.
1: Okay, thank you so much for your answer again. So my next question is still involved. Um, is is still involved in introduction? So in the introduction, you say that this work is grounded in the lived experience of writers who identify with madness, who identify as mad, or who believe in the field of mad studies. So what's the role of autoethnography and the theories of autoethnography in this collection?
0: Yeah, I'll go ahead and answer this one. Um, That's a really great question. Um, And it also really gets to the theoretical underpinnings of our collection. So first, this collection, um, it embodies communication scholar Carolyn Ellis's conception of autoethnography as a feminist approach. So this approach involves a writer both looking outward on the way that society and culture are influencing personal experience and inward on the way that one's vulnerable self, right, can resist those social and cultural interpretations, Um, In her work, Alex explains that this process entails engaging in what she calls emotional recall, which basically means that a vulnerable observer or writer, right, imagines themselves emotionally and physically back in the scene of the event, right? We're gonna, kind of what Jess was talking about, like going back in time and having those memories, right? Um, The creative pieces in in our collection are really using this approach because these writers are reflecting on their personal experiences of, about, related to madness and the mad woman. Um, One example I think of is Nadia Rising's chapter. Uh, In it, at the beginning, Rising emotionally recalls a mental health episode that landed her in the ER, right? But it also inspired her to write her play Liar, which is shared in our collection. Rising explains that she channeled her negative experiences and the medical maltreatment that she received into this art, right? By creating this really creative play that is dissociating Jane Eyre's Bertha Mason from her literary origins. And she's placing Jane and Bertha in this like parallel universe where they're interrogating the identity markers of madness and they're trying to seek liberation, um, so, Rising's use of the autoethnographic approach exemplifies how literature and art embody social activism, which is really like the major premise of our collection. Um, and in addition to Ellis's work, our collection is absolutely indebted, indebted to and takes great inspiration from uh, the theoretical contributions um, in Sherry Moraga and Gloria, Gloria Anzaldúa's This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. Um, just a quick summary. Their edited collection was pretty groundbreaking. Maraga um, and Anzaldua propose a theory of the flesh, which is they propose it as an alternative feminist epistemology, right? That champions radical theorizing based on the physical realities. Again, those lived experiences of women of color. Their collection brought together marginalized women of color writers to create a politic that incites action, despite all of their differences, um, and this bridge just really opened the door for the kind of scholarships that we put forth in our collection. It's one that centers the subject of the madwoman by bridging the academic and the creative, lived and the fictively imagined, right? To incite a type of liberatory consciousness within our readers. At least that is our hope. <laughs> um, in this way, like the scholarly and creative pieces in our collection, in our collection are really working together as a consciousness-raising effort that's encouraging readers to consider the madwoman again as a complex subject that's worthy of academic study.
1: So, okay, thank you so much for your answer. So, after talking about about introduction of the book, my next question is about the organization. So, this book is broken into three sessions. Would you mind talking about why and how the book was organized in this way, and in other words, why they, why less categories?
0: Yeah, I'll go. I'll go ahead and, and answer this one as well. Um, so we decided to organize the essays into three main sections because they felt we felt they really like best thematically lumped them all together, right? So the sections are silencing the mad woman, trauma and testimony of the mad woman, and then finally redefining the mad woman. So each section includes both academic essays and creative pieces that we've termed mad disruptions, and I'll speak about those a little bit in, in a second. Um, the first section on silencing the mad Woman, it revisits the common theme of wind, women and gender nonconforming folks, um, their voices being silenced, especially those who defy social norms, be they racist, sexist, ableist, sanist, et cetera. Um, the writers of this section pay especially keen attention to silence and speaking and listening, right? All related to that kind of idea of silence. And perhaps most importantly, who has the right to speak and be heard? Um, The second section on trauma and testimony of the mad woman brings together testimonial examples of trauma, right? Including literary and personal accounts of women's varied encounters with the asylum and mental health care and psychiatric institutions. The writers of this section are really interrogating... Um, The historical traumas as well of colonialism, racism, and sexual abuse and disability. Um, But they're also highlighting forms of mad agency that testify to madness as a site of truth and activism. These pieces are just, they're so powerful. Um, And finally, we have our third section on redefining the mad woman, which paves new paths and directions for thinking about and through the mad woman. Um, the, the writers of this section are trying to argue for a more expansive definition of the term and to include gender nonconforming folks, mad black women, mad girls, and women with disabilities, just to name a few examples. Um, but I do want to return to our idea of mad disruptions, which are the creative pieces by mad activists, um, writers, and artists that we have throughout the collection. What these mad disruptions do is they interrupt the academic chapters to bring attention again to those lived experiences of people who have been silenced or ignored and whose lives have been deemed unvaluable forms of knowledge. We, as Jess was saying earlier, we view these mad disruptions as social justice acts. These disruptions are disrupting, right, Uh, power structures. And we hope that readers of our collection will be really inspired by them or at least Prompted to consider, you know, how can madness be a tool to interrupt power structures, especially ones that control our discourse, like within the academia, but also outside of academia? Um, because this is really the main goal of our book, right? To disrupt sanus academic discourse. Um, so these disruptions are, are just part of our mad methodology.
1: Okay, thank you so much. For the next question, after talking about the organization of this book, let's talk about its contribution to the research literature. So I'm wondering how your book um, expanded expand the conversation on the mad women and how is this work different from earlier works on the mad women?
2: Okay. I'm going to speak to this a little, and I hope that my connection is coming through okay. Uh, uh, so many who are familiar with the mad woman as a subject. We'll relate it to uh, Gilbert and Gubar's work, "The Mad Woman in the Attic," the sem- their seminal work, which was a, a, a work of feminist literary criticism. And one of the things when we started this this collection was that I really wanted to study the mad woman, and I thought the mad woman is still relevant. And and you know, no, Nicole and I both agreed, but we weren't sure whether others would share our agreement that we saw the relevance of the mad woman, not in terms of a uh, just a strictly literary kind of contextualization. The Mad Woman for us was something else. We saw the Mad Woman as a social justice uh, agent in some way. And this was something that literary treatments of the Mad Woman seem to not, uh, not quite, not quite do for us in in terms of like when we were coming as people that have had lived experiences with labels or lived experiences with institutionalization, which I had. Uh, And so I want to talk, you know, I want to talk about the mad woman as someone who's been labeled a mad woman is a different kind of thing than let's talk about the mad woman in, in the novels of whoever, Uh, you know, and so we came to this project from a different angle than it has been done, than the Madwoman has kind of been treated in the past. So we do reference Gilbert Gubar's work. One of the things that maybe is not so well known is that The Madwoman in the Attic, the title of that work uh, really refers, it refers to uh, Gilbert Gubar's chapter which addresses the the mad woman in the attic. The entire work is more expansive than the mad woman. It's just one small little section of a very large book. Um, so we kind of worked a little bit with the text uh, of of that work in our introduction to make to draw our connections to it, but also to say how what we're doing is different than that. Um, and and so I'm going to just read really quickly from from that uh, section in our introduction. Addressing the cultural production of madness and how madness and the madwoman contribute to our understanding of the relationship between disability and notions of sickness and illness was not something that Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar were able to do when they wrote the 10th chapter of The Madwoman in the Attic, a dialogue of self and soul, plain Jane's progress. Gilbert and Gubar ask us to think about the literary feminist implications of reading Madness as feminist rebellion in Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre through the characters of Jane and Bertha Mason. Uh, But they're not asking us explicitly to think about the social implications of this work on mad people's lives and bodies. And certainly for me, as someone who is institutionalized, having read this work earlier and having encountered just even the theme, just even having the book on my shelf, when I was institutionalized, it was like someone out there knows that there's oppression involved in this institutionalization, that there's a system and so i kind of turned back to these works but there was something left like there was something missing there was something like left undone by the works because gilbert and gubar were not coming and they were not trying to fight for mad justice mad liberation of of people's bodies from institutions uh to to fight for the autonomy of people to label each other they were kind of looking at it from a literary critical perspective and so it was like well what if we think about what if we think about the mad woman, but it's not in, from a literary uh, criticism perspective primarily, like it can involve that, but what if that's not the center? What if the center is, you know, mad liberation, uh, fighting fighting different kinds of oppressions that intersect in madness? And, and that's where we started from, in our, and our introduction deals a lot with
1: that. Thank you so much for your answer. Then let's, I have a question. When I read your book, uh, especially the first chapter of the book i noticed that you address silencing the mad woman so is there any piece in particular or quote from a chapter that you could share with us in the elaborate on personally
2: okay so do you mind i think i'll start with this a little bit here to talk about the silencing of the mad woman in this section um the beginning piece of of the book the the sort of first piece in this section of the book is uh, speech that I gave uh, at the Northeast Modern Language Association conference in 2020, where we had our Mad Women roundtables, which is the grounds and you know the foundation of what the conversations of which were the foundation for this book. And there are two works in this section that are more creative works: uh, the uh, a piece by Erin Soros called "Teeth," the Mad Woman in the Conference, and then my beginning piece, which kind of bookends the, the critical essay uh, in it, which is Working for Shakespeare's Sister, Meditating on the Mad Woman. And so what What was happening, in, at least in the essay that I wrote, was a, a kind of breaking of the silence. It was the first speech that started our conversation at the conference, and it was speaking sort of into this void, but filling it with meaning on the Mad Woman by asking questions. I was asking, what is the Mad Woman? What can the Mad Woman be? Um, and, I, and, I, and, and I was calling for us to sort of think as a collective in that conference conversation, round table environment for us to say like, wh- what do we need, what new, need you know, what newness needs to be written and, and said and spoken about the mad woman. And at the end of that section, I, I said, how can we revolt? with madness if we are not seen as actors in our madness if our agency is sucked out of us if we are smattered onto a mask used to render hatred and fear of our cause if the patriarchy seeks to confine us if no one will listen to what we have to say now i think this grapples with this question of silence and silence as a theme because we often think about silence as a muting the, you know the sort of the stopping of the voice the stopping of the sound uh, and and, you know, it, it is this something that we write about in literary theory that I wanted to get away with, get away from. Instead, I wanted to say, like, what what does erasure look like in our actual lives in our actual lived experiences? And Aaron Soros, who was also part of uh, of this conference and this Mad Woman Roundtable, came into the conference and, you know, w- spoke aloud. A, a speech that was so profound about madness in academia. And basically, you know, kind of just jolted everyone in that room out of academic discourse as usual, out of the comfort of, you know, jargon and out of, you know, the, the sort of academic trajectory and said, what about actual madness? What if we actually had madness in this space you know what if i say something out of turn that is read as irrational or mad what if i speak as i might as one might speak in an institutional space or in a way that could be institutionalized and i speak that way here in the conference am i going to be othered am i going to be listened to is there a space for me in the in the academy and Soros later ended up writing this essay, which became part of this section, which which certainly does grapple with silencing, because in the essay, uh, Soros writes about a story of being in an institution and being permitted by the psychiatrist, and I use "permitted" in kind of a in a quotey kind of sarcastic way, but being granted permission by the psychiatrist in an institution to leave the institution temporarily to go, in order to go to an academic conference. And there's an exchange here uh, where, where uh, Soros writes, now here I was at a conference, not free, not yet, still under section as it is called in this country as if only a section of the madwoman can enter the world while another part remains still in the drugged hallways of dull eyes. I had convinced the psychiatrist that I would attend this conference and listen, only listen. They had come to believe by then that I was a writer. You are in Wikipedia, one psychiatrist announced to me, the one we all called Darth Vader. He sat on his di- this digital truth that was apparently so much more real than anything I had tried to express. Will you keep quiet? I will keep quiet. And then and then Soros goes to the goes to the conference and, and details this this you know quandary of keeping quiet. Okay, the psychiatrist says, You're allowed to go to this conference as long as you're silent while you're there. And it and, and it and it just is a jolting erasure. It's you know, it's a jolting oppression that that comes forward and draws attention to the silencing of mad people in all circumstances, and especially in, the, in, the, in academia.
0: I, that, that's so great, Jess. Erin's uh, performance really really shook the room when it happened. Um, I just wanted to add that and kind of just talk about the academic chapters of that section. Um, there's one in particular that stands out and I just you know want to share, and it's um, Christina Foisy's chapter on literary soundscapes and the ethics of listening otherwise to women's experiences of electroshock in Janet Frames' novel, Faces in the Water. What makes this essay so unique is that it bends genres, right? Foise identifies as a mad sound artist researcher and her analysis of Frames' novel is accompanied by these soundscapes that she created that echo the major themes in the novels and she even includes like a link to the SoundCloud page in her essay. It's, it's just really cool. And it's very disruptive in terms of how she's understanding and analyzing sound. Um, and, you know, of, of course, her research is sound as well, right? She's considering madness in the asylum, of course, through the lens of sound. But she's also critiquing the silencing practice, practices of electroshock therapy that try to erase women's memories and voices.
1: Okay, thank you so much for your answer. So next question after talking about first session of your book, let's turn to the next, second session. So this session this session is related to trauma and testimony of a mad woman. So my question here is uh, what kind of trauma do these pieces in this session speak to and what do lay testimonies over?
0: Yes, I, I'll go ahead and talk a little bit here. Um, again, you know, all of the pieces throughout the collection are just so thought provoking and engaging. Um, the kinds of trauma that are talked about in this section include that of the asylum, of course, psychiatric healthcare system, but also those historical traumas that I brought up earlier relating to race and gender and ability. Um, there's one piece that comes to mind in in terms of the academic essays of this section is probably Stevie Shurik's analysis of objectum sexuals in the documentary film Married to the Eiffel Tower. Um, They define objectum sexuals as individuals who are oriented to love objects, so this love is similar to how people tend to love other people in romantic relationships, but instead it's towards objects, right, like the Eiffel Tower or a bridge. Shurek pulls from mad feminism and queer feminist disability studies to critique the dominant discourses of ableism, heteronormativity, um, and and just sexuality that are informing medical rhetoric, right? And undermining the sexuality of objectum sexuals. Uh, For example, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and autism, Shurek explains, are often given as explanations of objectum sexuality. these labels just reinforce this type of sexuality as non-normative and therefore mad and so our piece is really trying to you know get us to look in new directions and and new understandings and different types of being and consciousness that that exists in the world
2: um i'm just want to add a little something to this in saying that uh, as i was kind of looking back on the book in preparation for for our, our talk today i noticed that our themes kind of cross each other. This is something that I I always tell my students when I'm introducing a syllabus and I have sections that are dividing the syllabus into themes. And I say, well, I have these here to orient us toward a theme, but I I really all of the themes cross each other. So when we're in the section on silence, we're in the section on trauma. You know, when we're in the section on trauma, we're in the section on silence. And I and I was as I looked back on Soros's piece, I noticed this one section where Soros is in the in the academy and says, I put up my hand once more. She's at the conference. Did someone call on me or did I just speak without permission? I noticed that all the keynotes are white. And I thought about trauma and I thought about silence because there's both the theme here of silence and the theme of uh, institutional trauma in terms of white supremacy at academic conferences. like, And, and the fact that Soros is in this position of being silenced, being silenced at the conference and navigating that at, but is so simultaneously uh, paying attention to the institutional trauma uh, that people of color can experience when they're at an academic conference and in their you know, whiteness is abounding and that sort of thing. So I also um, want to drive home the point that I think Nicole did also make that trauma is and can still be a place of agency that whether we are in the aftermath of trauma or we are in the midst of trauma, we, we can still practice agency. And I think Soros's piece also draws attention to Soros is in the midst of trauma, institutional trauma, and, and is also exercising agency by writing within this space.
1: Thank you so much for your answer again. So for the last question today, I want to talk I, I want to talk about I want you guys talk about third session of your book, uh, which is on the redefining the mad women. So my question here is what pieces in this collection mostly I mean most strongly strive to redefine the mad women and what does it mean to redefine something and the, this figure specifically within your book?
0: Sure. Yeah, um, I'll talk a little bit about um, you know this section's really trying to pave new paths, like I said earlier, and, and new ways to think about the mad woman. Um, one example in the academic essay in the academic essays is uh, Kira Sterling's analysis of the mad black woman in Hale Darima's film Bush Mama. So Sterling's investigating the label of the mad black woman and the rev- revolutionary potential of black female rage. So specifically, she's engaging a paradigm of possession and exorcism to explore paths to Black liberation. So again, we have these themes of like, how is madness a tool for liberation? How is it an an activist tool, right? Um, And the chapter importantly expands the definition of the Madwoman to include the powerful ways that Black women are reclaiming madness. A label that's been forged through the processes of historic colonial possession. And using it as a source for revolutionary ends. Um <clears throat> Kiera's essay and others in the section, they they really implore us to develop a more expansive view of the mad woman and including, you know, Maria Rovito's essay on girls who cut and like mad girls, not just women, not just these the adult idea of women, but how madness can be used as a tool in, you know throughout different ages of life, right? And in this way, it's really pushing beyond Gilbert and Gubar's original conception, especially one that was, like Jess was saying earlier, was very much in line with the white feminist movement and not so much taking in other types of positionalities and beings and marginalities in that kind of get wrapped up in along with the madness and the mad woman.
2: Yes. And I'll go to the kind of second part of your question for a moment here about this, like how, uh, you know, what is it? mean to redefine something. So it was something that I'm constantly grappling with because I use terms like reimagine, redefine a lot. Uh, And it's like, why am I, why am I doing this? Well, uh, you know, I was thinking more about this and reclaiming has to do with, you know, responding to the denial, uh, you know, to the sort of epistemic denials that people experience. So when, you know, words and concepts that are used to harm people right and they, they carry all of this weight and they carry all of this history and and much of that history is erased is suppressed you know it's is something we can't access so when we're doing the work of redefining we're grappling with all of that it's a very you know it's complex it's difficult but redefining has to do with kind of saying that words concepts uh, are not the property of, they are not property of people. They, you know, they they kind of getting out of that sort of white supremacist way of thinking about language in and of itself, but that also knowledge itself and knowledge making, um, you know, doesn't belong to only the oppressors, right? It is, our, it is ours and people who are oppressed to use those terms to either Say we don't want them; they're so harmful. We don't even want to have anything to do with them, or to say we're going to do something different, you know, and we're going to take back our power and take the power out of the hands of this the, of the entities that are using this language to harm us. Uh, I think it's also redefining is also about expanding. It's about expanding the shapes and the forms that come to constitute the meaning of madness, the meaning of the mad woman, the meaning of our lives. Uh, and, you know, one of the examples is that, uh, that I think of all the time in relation to this book is we had an essay by a writer who didn't end up um, being able to, to participate in the creation of the book, but they wanted to write uh, an essay about um, seeing the madwoman w- like in a genderqueer way uh, and, and looking at uh, trans identities and um, non binariness as a as a as a madwoman kind of formation, and I always missed that from this collection. Um, and I think some of our work goes there and points there, but it's it's not there yet. But I know that other writers are publishing this work and doing this work. Finally, in response to this this final question that you've asked us, I want to turn to the final essay in our collection, which is by uh, Jay Gagnon, and it is called "Where These Maps Have Led Me." And I work with Jay Gagnon in, uh, in co-facilitating Memoirs to Reimagine Mental Health Care, our, our weekly workshop that we have been doing for about three years. And uh, we have a community of writers there that, um, that Gagnon thanks at the beginning of the essay um, because so much of this work as nicole and i were writing you know putting together and editing this collection i was doing this workshop i was working with a community of writers who had had psychiatric experiences or experiences with psychiatric labels and diagnoses and and relationships with the the term mad and all that work was informing this and and i uh and jay J- J- Gagnon kind of presented this essay and it wasn't for our collection i heard it in a workshop through these workshops with her story, And when I heard the essay, all of a sudden I was going, oh my gosh, like this contributes so much to what we're trying to do. You're writing differently. You're writing about the mad woman in a totally different way. And uh, bringing the mad woman into the present, into the lived experience present. So I'm just gonna share this kind of final uh, excerpt from uh, Jay Gagnon's work. I know disabled women, mad women, Were hidden away in attics. But modern media written from an outside perspective fails to show the richness many of us find in our lives. Even in my lowest times, cowering at the shadows or crying in pain with every movement, there are movements when my mind frolics, leaping between stepping stones of contact with the outside world. In these weeks and months sequestered in my room, Stories unwind and re-spool themselves in my head, and my plans grow like gardens, dreams blooming to get me through. The external image of the mad or sick woman in her dressing gown, hair unkempt, fabricated by those who do not live this life, doesn't show that. This is why I write memoir, to contribute to the archive of authentic narratives of the mad woman, the disabled woman, that has been distorted by an external perspective in in popular media. So let me tell you, here is what my attic room looks like. And that that goes on, you know, I kind of encourage, I don't want to give too much away, but, um, you know, it's a very powerful piece. We ended it there because it's also a jumping off place. We didn't want our book to end as like, here's a fun, you know, here's the end all be all. This is what a mad woman is. No, this is just an opening space to more conversation and more definitions and ro- more redefinitions. So, you know, thank you so much for, for having us today and letting us share a little bit about this amazing collection. I just want to also thank all of our, all of the people who contributed to this book, whether it be through our, our cover artists, um, our editors are you know the, those we worked with at Vernon press and especially the writers uh who are doing the social justice activist work and and who joined in this book to
1: do this okay thank you so much for your answer so at the end of our talk today I want to directly talk to our audience I want to say as a disability his, as a historian of disability and gender in East Asia while I have very limited knowledge of mad women especially in the western context I when I read this book, I still learn a lot. Very, very interesting. Very insightful things from this fantastic collection. And in the meantime, I want to say I I think it's a, it's a must to sorry it's a must read book in the field of the study of I want uh, intersection of gender and uh, math, especially for anybody with strong interest in the history and the, the I I mean the contemporary understanding of the definition or a conception of mad women, um, you must buy a copy of this book. So at the end of our talk today, I want to repeat the title of the book again, The Mad Women in Social Justice Movement, Literature and Art. It's a must-read book in the, about a research subject, about a phenomenon, about a people, so-called mad women. So thank you so much for listening to episode today so have a good day
2: thank you thank
0: you so much that's so great <laughs>